The Innovate 608 podcast is brought to you by Starting Block Madison and sponsored by the Wisconsin State Journal, Madison.com, and the American Family Insurance Institute for Corporate and Social Impact. The Institute invests in visionary entrepreneurs who are building scalable social enterprises, offering economic opportunity for all, healthy youth development, learning, and academic achievement, and resilient communities. From the Starting Block Madison studio in the beautiful Capital East neighborhood of downtown Madison, Wisconsin, this is the Innovate 608 podcast, and I am your host, Nora Rowan-Schmidt. Today in the studio, we have Troy and Joe from Generator. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's really great to have you. Talk to me a little bit about entrepreneurship was this always the path for you um I was going to be an archaeologist for example so and here I am what was the original path for you guys that's a good question I was thinking about what did I put in like my college applications and I'm pretty sure I did an essay about wanting to be an FBI agent in a handful of them um for whatever reason that seemed intriguing the investigative aspect of it so (laughs) from that um you know i ended up going to uw madison for undergrad and i uh followed along in kind of a, a family entrepreneurial path so everything from my maternal grandparents opened a tailor shop in racine wisconsin and had their own small business my paternal grandparents uh, owned and operated a farm in Northeast Iowa. And and then my parents had their own small business, um, which did light manufacturing for salt and sand spreaders for ice control. And so I think entrepreneurship was always, you know, going to be some part of my journey. And when I went to Madison as an undergrad, I ended up starting a t-shirt company called Scani Nation and um, had some early success with that. And, and that really put me down this entrepreneurial career path. But Despite that, I, when I graduated from undergrad, I, I still thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I applied to law school and I was fortunate that I got in. And uh, about halfway through my first semester of law school, I just hated it and thought like, oh, this is not what I want to do or it wasn't what I was expecting. And so um, I still went through with it. Uh, but when I graduated, I was able to join an organization called the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic at the at the Wisconsin Law School, along with Ann Smith and Eric Englund. And I love that because it really was kind of this hybrid between entrepreneurship and law, as the name indicates. And so that was an aspect of law that I really liked. And, and from that is ultimately how I got to meet Joe. Joe will tell his story on how he was practicing law. Uh, but ultimately, that led us to Generator. So I started wanting to be an FBI agent, started a company, started a t-shirt company, perhaps the the most low-tech thing you can imagine, and then ended up going to law school and then starting Generator. All right, Joe, what about you? So two attorneys. Yeah, uh, same. I wanted to be in public service, so my goal was to go and I thought be an attorney and maybe a U.S. attorney or a district attorney. I'd been a federal law clerk after law school. Um, so didn't have this on my radar. Um, I did have in my family, people who ran their own businesses in sort of my grandpa sold ditch diggers, for example, ditch, witch, ditch diggers. Um, but it wasn't like an entrepreneurial brand or vein that we talked about. Um, so I did not expect to be here, but I'm thrilled. You know, I couldn't have imagined it any other way in retrospect, but I don't think I could have imagined it um, in anticipation of it either. So how did we get to where we are today? 
What was, where did the idea for Generator come from? Where did the name come from? Was it an aha moment or many, many months of planning? How did it all go down? Yeah, so I think we were both looking for a way to get our community to invest into its best and brightest. So I had been working with some angel investors. Troy was working, as you mentioned, at that law and entrepreneurship clinic. And it was pretty clear that there was a tool missing in the community's approach to how we invested in the next generation and that accelerators offered it a way to achieve that. And so we, I think we, it was at a Starbucks in the Capitol Square. So a few blocks from here that we got coffee in. In my head, that's the beginning of Generator. Um, and so we joined up and, you know, we would write these, we had some angel investors who were willing to help finance the first cohort. But, you know, when you look at the accelerator model, it's extraordinarily difficult. You're writing a twenty to $100,000 check for 6 to 7%. You expect to get diluted three, four, five, six times before, you know, eight or 10 years later, you have a success. And at that point, you're hoping a company's worth in the hundreds of millions to make it all just worthwhile, not even necessarily successful, just, just you know, worth, worth the whole event. Um, and I remember we wrote those first checks, you know, five or six checks. And I remember sitting there at night expecting these young adults to create, you know, $100 million plus companies from these $20,000 checks and wondering if that's what it was like to be crazy but not self-aware, um, that we were going to somehow, you know, find this this community catalyst that could that could go from zero to that outcome uh, but nine years later we're really grateful to still be doing it talk a little bit about some of the different aspects of the accelerators very early on were you both doing all of the education were you using mentors and networks to accomplish some of those things how did you develop your formula yeah early on when, when we started you know, Joe and I, we were the managing directors of those programs. So we would do annual three month long accelerators in each of Madison and Milwaukee. So we would alternate, but on a, so once per year in Madison, once per year in Milwaukee. Um, and we we're in, in the trenches day in and day out working with some of those early companies. You know, that includes Matt Howard and Eric Martell from each street, um, Alex Slocum from Abodo now rentable, um, Alex Kubitschek from understory. Um, so some of those really early companies and, it would be biweekly meetings, you know, more the, the, the interesting fact is the, more or less the formula hasn't changed. I mean, we would do biweekly meetings, we would do group gatherings, we would have mentor sessions. Um, but Joe and I were the ones in there and doing it today. We have a staff of more than 110 full-time employees across 30 cities. And so we are not in the trenches as much. Um, but we have tremendous faith and confidence in, in, you know, the, the team members that we have who, who run each of those individual programs, as well as, you know, we have, we have a back office. We have a, a VP of operations, a VP of growth. We have a controller. We're hiring in our first in-house counsel. So, you know, we're, we're leveling up ourselves as an organization and, and we very much view ourselves through the, the lens of a startup as well. Well, congratulations on all of that tremendous success. Like what a huge accomplishment Thank you. in a relatively small amount of time. So yeah. all that Almost hard work paid off. <laughs> what is your definition of entrepreneurship? I think... At the end of the day, it's about can you come up with a product or service that the market wants? You know, for us, it's all about proving that the dog will eat the dog food. And I don't think that's changed in a millennia. 
And I think sometimes we delude ourselves into thinking, uh, or I shouldn't say we, I should say, I think a, st a common stumbling block of entrepreneurs is they get so engrossed in, for example, the product. I'm a product person, I'm a developer, I'm an engineer, I'm just gonna be product, 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 without lifting their head up and seeing, is this something the market wants? Do customers resonate with this? Can I validate what I'm doing? And so a big part of our job, kind of the placebo effect, is identifying where entrepreneurs have a core competency, perhaps it's around product engineering, and reorienting them around things like customer validation and sales and business development. Um, we've also, I think, been kind of a vanguard in, in particular, evolving the accelerator model to a different type of entrepreneur. So starting almost three years ago, we've extended the generator model to artists and musicians, which we very much think are entrepreneurs. And so again, I go back to that definition of, are you creating a product or service? In this case, your, your music, your art, and is there a market for that? And so we're still asking those same questions to the artists and musicians that we work with. So it's, it's fundamentally the same. Uh, I also kind of get a kick that the story I've been told, so I'm going to presume it's true, is that the word angel investor actually comes from the arts. So it started with playwrights on Broadway that wanted to produce their show and they would find patrons of the arts, high net worth individuals who would put up the money to do that. And they got the name angel or angels, angel investors. And so it's interesting that today, a word that we use almost exclusively in the context of high tech entrepreneurship, hey, I'm, I'm a high tech entrepreneur, I'm looking for an angel investment is actually a word that came from the art. So in a unique way, we've kind of come full circle perhaps with what we do. Are there any characteristics that successful entrepreneurs across the board always have? And if so, what are they? I think we'd both would shy away from saying that there's like a silver bullet that, you know, if an entrepreneur has X, they'll be successful. But, you know, disproportionately, uh, our most successful entrepreneurs, you know, I think one of the things that we had anxiety about when we started was, you know, the most important critique is the graduate of the program. You know, did they feel like if, if this was successful that, that, um, that we had some role in it. And as we are nine years in, you know, the founders who have successfully built and scaled companies have been almost uniformly people who are grateful and who felt like they had been benefiting from the the kindness and compassion of people along the way and that they would want to pay it forward and so i don't know that there's some like single ingredient but it is a common it's too common to, to be random or accidental amongst all the varying things that each of them offer so that is a common thread that i'm very grateful for and you know as we've scaled inevitably you get people who really love it and really don't like it as much but it's always been amazing to me that the people we serve have almost exclusively the ones who've really built and scaled been in that, that grateful category. What has the last year or last couple of years during the, the pandemic been like for Generator? Um, you know, as an outside observer and also as someone who knows quite a bit about Generator, I've seen some incredible growth and some really creative approaches. So from the outside looking in, it seems like there is a, a tremendous amount of not only growth, but positive things happening, maybe because of some of the, the challenges that the pandemic presented. Can you talk about your approach to the pandemic and what was good and was what scary, wasn't good? Right? I think it was scary for everyone. You know, what's going to happen when when news of the virus was coming out and things were shutting down and 
you know, for us, the lifeblood of our programs are, they, they are the accelerator programs. And if, if we're not, if those shut down, like, what do we do? And so, you know, first and foremost, we made the decision to move them to a virtual format, which is something that I think will persist to some degree. Meaning I think everyone is experiencing this evolution into hybrid work and we're no exception. Meaning I think gone are the days where we're going to fully require people to relocate to the city full time for three months. But what I do think is going to happen is we're going to have sprints that are in person and we're going to really optimize that time that we have together. And then we're going to complement that with more virtual programming. For example, we do a mentor swarm with each of our accelerator programs where over 100 mentors volunteer their time to meet one on one with founders. We would do those in person um, today by doing those virtually. We can have more mentors participate. We can have presumably better mentors participate because previously not all those mentors could travel to Madison, for example. And I think that that really benefits the entrepreneur. Similarly, on the investor side, uh, historically, we would physically travel with the startups to the Bay Area, to Chicago, to uh, New York or Silicon or uh, L.A. and other parts. Today, that's all done virtually. And I think everyone is better off for it, both from a volume perspective. You can do more pitches. And from just a cost perspective, you know, we don't need to spend time away from our families or, you know, spending money on, on plane tickets. So I think those are uh, things that will persist. And those are definitely a positive. Um, I'll let Joe talk perhaps about emergency response program. And yeah, it, we, I mean, how I think that's how I think it's changed our industry and our product as much that, that uh, but how, how I think it affected us as a lived experience was, you know, on March, 10th as things start shutting down um the president goes into his oval office address and you know he has the small business administration economic injury disaster loan i think idle that he allocates 50 billion to and immediately the whole world starts wondering what's going on and zoom takes off like in 10 minutes and we were wondering what we could do to help explain this to our founders. You know, at that point, we had a community of hundreds of small business owners that were going through this program that he, the president was outlining. Troy did some really great videos where he would go through and they kept changing the economic injury disaster loans application process because and it kept crashing. And so he would do a new video and some of it even went kind of semi-viral, how he would walk people through that experience. But we really wanted to, to present how we could help from the experience of, from the, you know, the bird's eye view of our founders going through it. Um, and so we did that and then it started becoming something for our founders and we opened it up with American Family Insurance's Institute for Corporate and Social Impact, Shane and Naira, um, opened it up for kind of small businesses in, in the Midwest and in Wisconsin. We partnered with Indiana Economic uh, Development Corporation to do it in Indiana. And over a 60 day period, we had um, over 4,000 small businesses and nonprofits and I think another thousand or so musicians and artists that would go through with a week-long program that was an expedited accelerator with a mix of one-on-one -on -one calls. So our team of 43 or 44 people volunteered and did thousands of one-on-one of -on -one phone calls, all to help concierge these people as they walked through these different state and federal programs, which changed week by week as the different different programs were guidance would come out or a program would change or a law would pass. Um, and so it was, it was incredibly impactful because a lot of people coming through were individuals who were falling through the cracks of, you know, being a small business owner and how that related to the, the, 
pandemic unemployment assistance programs that were coming out and the state systems that weren't created yet. And the net would be, you know, you get through all this acronym soup and it's a person who can't pay for their groceries. Um, and our team would get off a call and be talking to people who are going through one of the scariest, you know, they're paycheck to paycheck and they're three or four paychecks away from their last income and they're three or four paychecks away from an unemployment check and what happens to them. And so that was very vivid. You know, people on our team would get off a call, you know, in distress as much as the person who they were talking to, who was obviously going through so much more. So that, that experience really changed us. And I think we were looking for ways to continue on with this model of community service. Again, in that April, May, June window, unemployment was just off the charts. And we partnered in July with, um, as a result, Microsoft, which had done a little bit of work with us in that program, and was wondering if we would partner with them on an emerging initiative called the Global Skills Initiative to help people who are unemployed due to COVID get a digital certificate in one of the top 10 most in-demand jobs in America. And we agreed, not because we were intending to like open up another part of our company, but because we had been changed as a company in dealing with this crisis and we wanted to continue serving the public. And as the crisis unfolded, we needed to keep amending how we did it. Uh, we did a pilot for 19 people in Northeast Wisconsin in August. I think we had three weeks to go from concept to program and recruiting people and the curriculum and the schedule. Uh, so it was, it was a crazy July. Um, we did the program in August. The Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes did the keynote of the program graduating in October. Uh, and we were able to get 80% graduation and, and like 86% job placement, which was, you know, 68 plus percent unemployed completely coming in to balance really severely underemployed or, you know, working two or three jobs inconsistently. Um, and then we've been able to scale that with Microsoft over the last year to 14 cities. Um, we're over 265 graduates, I think, um, 160 or 170 range of jobs, um, maintaining like 78% graduation rate and, um, um, in that 70% range, I think, for jobs. I have to go check that. But um, it's been really remarkable. We're anticipating well over 1,000 graduates in the next 12 months. Um, all is, for us, this COVID journey continues to kind of write its next chapters. But it absolutely changed us as a company as much as a product. Um, and, you know, I still think we're trying to gain perspective on just what exactly it is that we are as a company as we emerge from it. And obviously with Omricon and other things, you know, the carousel keeps turning and how we need to keep adjusting. We were supposed to do an in-staff retreat in Birmingham next week that we just had to make virtual. So, um, you know, it's it's been a, a really challenging as we unwound five conferences that we had rented out last summer and had to figure out again um, this year, um, you know, it's business owners. It's, it's, you know, I think we both have aged a considerable deal from it. <laughs> it's incredible, everything that you've done in the last couple of years. What are some opportunities that you've seen that the pandemic has presented for entrepreneurs and some, maybe some some opportunities for new technologies or different different approaches um, that that there's rooms for in the marketplace? Uh, yeah, I think we're it was a really great year for our portfolio. So as venture investors, we're I think one of the things we feel a little awkward about is the economy really shifted in that in that stay at home period from a brick and mortar world to a digital one. And so as a, a venture fund that had been, with, I think we're Wisconsin's most active investor, building this digital portfolio in the state, you know, a company, Bright Sellers, which relocated from Cambridge to Milwaukee to be in the program, 
sells home wine. Well, it was a great year to sell wine to people's houses. They, you know, they grew like crazy. Each street in Madison, it was a great year to deliver food to people's homes. Um, Fiveable, which just raised, had it was I think in our Madison cohort, but relocated to Milwaukee Post program um, from from uh, Maine or Oakland. But they were doing online tutoring for kids to pass the AP exam. Well, that was a great year to do online education. So you know, these are companies that are Wisconsin based that are graduates of our program that have raised now tens of millions um, and are growing considerably and COVID really changed what they did um, in an incredible way that um, advanced probably their growth plans for two or three years. So it, it did, you know, and while we're doing these emergency response programs and doing those skills programs, it was very tale of two cities where, you know, at the same time we're doing it, we're getting emails from founders saying that the, their business is growing really fast. And you know, they were one of the few in the state hiring when everyone was letting people go. Um, but even them, you know, their first week or two out of COVID was terrifying when the warehouses were shut down or restaurants were closed. So, you know, even in those scenarios, I think the founders, you know, went through very difficult periods, but we saw firsthand that shift to the digital economy. And, and, um, I don't think that that was a one and done. I, I think it's the harbinger of, of future growth as we see more and more venture capital flowing into digital technology and, how our community chooses or not to participate is hopefully a lesson learned from COVID. Generator has a presence all over the country and now internationally. Why Wisconsin as home base? I think just because we're here. I think that's the story of so many things that gets perhaps overlooked in this is that Joe and I were born in Wisconsin. We went to school in Wisconsin and, and we stayed here. And, and that's where we saw the opportunity to, to build what we what we built. You know, when we look at the, there's a, a group called the Seed Accelerator Rankings Project. So it's some professors out of Rice University and MIT and Generator has been fortunate, you know, for, for each of the last surveys to be ranked amongst the top 15 programs in the country. And what's interesting is we're the only one that doesn't operate an equity-based program in a top 10 metro market. And we take a lot of pride in that. And um, it's, it's to prove that we can do it here in Wisconsin. So to answer your question, or I think it started because we, were just, we just lived here. We're from here. And it's remained here because um, I think we have a bit of a chip on our shoulder to prove that we can do it. And, and thus far, the numbers indicate that we can and, and we'll continue to be successful doing it. Generator has done a tremendous amount of work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. Um, some very beautiful work. Talk to me about that and um, what you see as ways that Generator can help to eliminate barriers to entry for all entrepreneurs. Yeah, we, our mission, we strive to be the best partner for communities to invest into their next generation. And we view that through the lens of place, race, and gender. Uh, and it's, and I really give credit to Maggie Brickerman, our partner on this and Abby Cursell, who's been running the G beta program, who I think put it, that mission into vivid action, but our, you know, we've, we've seen these discrepancies between what, you know, opportunity, which is, uh, not distributed everywhere in talent, which is that are too, too great to be something short of systemic. And our responsibility is as a community focused organization to, to make sure that our venture fund bridges that gap. So our, we're proud that we publish our data. And I think 
in terms of intent and and goal we're trying to be transparent about where we want to be on investing across place race and gender in terms of accountability we're proud that our funds are top performers and they're you know an order of magnitude more diverse ranging from four times the national average across place to you know 17 or 20 times the national average on metrics like um, investing in latina led women startups or black women led startups so th these are our gaps that we want to show that you can build a successful venture fund across place race and gender not just as a social impact statement but as a business statement um, and that it is good you do well by doing right by investing in these communities and we're trying to to you know be as, as focused on our intent on our transparency and our accountability to show that it is i'll also say it's been extraordinarily difficult you're dealing with a community that doesn't always trust everyone else in the community or how did we get here and you're also dealing with a system that you know i think will do just about anything than discuss the performance of our fund to avoid having to reconcile their own inability to invest on their own or, or accountability for performance on those metrics so it, it, it we've you know i would say it's been rewarding and i'm so glad we did it but i'd also tell you it's it's been probably for me personally the most challenging part of the job seeing both that potential and what what you want to do and also just encountering you know all the noise around this discussion which um you know it has been overwhelming at times what are some of the things that generator has done internally in terms of hiring practices and um seeking diversity and and other points of view um for the the organization there's tactical things. So for example, we specifically encourage underrepresented groups to apply and we put that in writing on all of our job postings. Um, we remove any sort of college ed education requirements um, in those job postings. So there's tactical things. On a more strategic level, I, what I, one thing I do really wanna highlight is the, the fact that we have a diverse team continues to snowball. And, and so where I think we have perhaps a leg up is, is, is when we have diversity across our team and and you know people can go to our statistics page and see that on a numerical level they can go to our team's page and, and visually see the diversity amongst our team and i think that that inures to our benefit meaning we're able to recruit more and more diverse candidates to open job roles that we have uh, and i think that's a good thing one other tactical thing i'll throw out is uh, we have a call to action committee which focuses on on de and i issues and uh, one member from that group always sits in on every final round of interviews and actually asks uh, scripted questions so, so that we are fair in, in asking the same questions to every candidate, specifically around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think that's been really eye-opening and a, a super positive thing that has come out of that, that, that work group. Mental health in entrepreneurship is something that continues to be a theme on this podcast and something that I've seen in other places in the media. What is the importance of work-life balance and mental health services um, as we're still battling a, a pandemic and longer work days and other things? Or how do both of you um, encourage your teams to have... Um, positive mental health practices and what do you do as founders on the drive back joe and i are going to get culvers so we that did plan this <laughs> <It is>. so, <laughs> that's part of the strategy <laughs> that's a key part of the strategy <laughs> but i'd say uh i'll start with our startup founders so certainly there's there's tremendous 
demand uh, on their brains. And, um, you know, we're proud to be a part of the global accelerator network. And so as part of that, there are, um, you know, with some limitations, there's free access to live mental health resources. So that's one thing, uh, for our team, you know, similarly, we work with a PEO full stack, uh, which provides a uh, employee assistance programming. And we make that, uh, and send reminders to our team about those, the availability of those resources. And then Nora, we've experimented with some creative things. So we've done everything from random company-wide holidays on like a Thursday or a Tuesday where we encourage everyone to take the day off and not plan any meetings or anything like that. To last year, we rented a cabin in the Northwoods and we incur- and people could rent it out for two or three days and take their friends or family up there. And, and that was hu- hugely popular. So uh, we've experimented with a lot of different creative things like that. Uh, and I think we'll continue to experiment with that. But I'm not going to lie, like it's this is the hard part. Like how now that we're still in this more or less virtual environment, like how do you how do you connect with people? How do you make sure that people are you know, caring for themselves and, and that's hard. I mean, Joe, Joe mentioned the D and I thing is hard. I, I think the mental health thing is really hard and uh, I, I don't have like a, a magic bullet answer. What is the best advice that you've ever been given? Probably like don't self-defeat. You know, I think uh, Joe and I were just together yesterday doing an exercise and I think too often, you know, you will get in our own heads and say like, Oh, I don't want to reach out to this person or I don't want to ask for this favor. And, and, uh, I mean, you probably should. And meaning like there's so much in life I think is solved by just showing up, being available and making the ask. And, and it's something I have to constantly remind myself of. And, and it's certainly something that we try to impress upon the entrepreneurs that we work with. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say like there's personal advice about, you know, just what you value in life that, but in a professional context, I, uh, totally agree. And it, um, I think it's the flip of, of, you know, going to that mental health question, you know, a lot of what generator is, is, is this huge effort to diffuse and, um, disable the imposter syndrome we encounter across you talk. I think it's related to all of these questions where you meet communities that are historically not involved in this process and it's inevitably an us and them dynamic, or you wouldn't be separated. And one of the signature markers of a dysfunctional community is the imposter syndrome of, well, maybe I'm not in that group because I don't belong. And whether it be our skilling program or our artist and music program or our startup program, it really goes to that self, don't self-defeat mantra, which is, hey, you belong in the room with anyone else. You have every right to do. And our our programs model around the managing directors who are, the, I think, the centerpiece of our product to the uh, mentorship program to how we structure getting people in the room is all built around that. And um, going to Troy's original point about how much the program hasn't changed, um, I think that's something that that for whatever reason we were able to do. And I, cre- I credit Troy with that model. Um, and 10 years later, I think, you know, it's nine years later, it's, I think, a big part of what we're hoping to still foster at a much larger level. But absolutely, it's don't, don't self-defeat. And, you know, for a company like ours that's doing it in these, this place, race, and gender lens, I, I think it means more. What's the best advice that you can give to somebody who's listening, who is working another full-time job and their brilliant idea is very much a side hustle right now, but they're ready to make the big move. What advice would you give to that person dreaming? I should do it. I think, um, 
you need to follow your heart and your pa- passion first and foremost, and you, you need to do what's right for you, your family, your other, you know, stakeholders at that point in time and which evolves. Right. Um, but to the extent someone's ready to jump in, I think start researching what resources exist in your community. And I go back to the benefit of COVID is you now have even more resources available that because they're accessible virtually. So I think doing your homework, being curious about what are the resources, whether it's meetup groups, accelerators, um, angel investment groups, pitch competitions, co-working spaces, like find all those resources and then just start rolling up your sleeves and immersing yourself in them. And I'm confident you'll navigate through that you know, in a, in a mutually beneficial path. Um, certainly we're biased. I think accelerators are a great tool that entrepreneurs can use to amplify their network. Now, some people think, oh, well, that's only helpful for first time entrepreneurs, et cetera. I think if you were to ask our alumni, my favorite example is Eric Martel. Eric was a co-founder of each street, our very first investment ever at generator. Um, he stepped aside from that and actually joined our team. So he was a managing director of our accelerator program in, uh, in the Twin Cities. He then had an idea for his next startup business called Pair Commerce, and he actually went through one of our programs then. So this is someone who's had success as an entrepreneur, li- literally was on the payroll, was a managing director at Generator, and still saw the value in the structure and external accountability that an accelerator provides. And so, I, I again, we're biased, but I really think there's a huge benefit to that. And there's literally hundreds of accelerators across the world. And my best advice for entrepreneurs is your job as CEO is to create optionality for yourself and for your startup. And you should be taking advantage and applying to all these different opportunities and let the worst case be that you turn them all down. We learn the most from our mistakes. What is something that was a a relatively significant mistake that you've made since starting Generator? And how did you fix it? We, you know, we have to make so many difficult yes and no decisions around who gets to be in a slot of five or six. I would, I, you know, I had one group that was like, they spent hours just trying to like learn what differentiates between four or five and six in, in a cohort. And inevitably that, that goes to all the decisions we make. You know, we're in this extremely hyperactive industry of yes and no to everything. Yes, you get investment. No, you don't. We get yeses and nos in the same model and for hiring and, and any other number of decisions. It's this, it's, it feels like this extraordinarily binary event and inevitably you make mistakes that are top, you know, bottom 1% and successes that are top 1%. And I think understanding our experience as a reflection of that system and not as an audit of every single one of those 1% events can be really difficult. You know, like I think we're not as good as we are in our best day and not as bad as we are in our worst day. And I think people, especially in an industry where it's so competitive or in a community where, you know, any advantage might be perceived as zero sum to another's, um, it, everything can get exposed to a point where it's a little comical and those top or bottom 1% decisions end up being what people talk about with us a lot. And I think it's much more the middle 50 or 60 that we make every day that actually dictate those outcomes. But how you you know don't design a system to be as cynical as its most cynical critic or as optimistic as its you know most optimistic performer um, is really difficult. And where you know as I look back on any one of the decisions that we've had to make, you know I feel like I, you know they're just a function of how we were trying to get through an incredibly difficult set of decisions. But um, how it's you know 
important to perceive what you have to change based on the system and not on the event. I'd say it's, we probably need to have more fun and celebrate ourselves more. (laughs) Meaning I think, um, we're our harshest critic. And I think that's true of a lot of entrepreneurs. And, you know, for me personally, you know, on a given objective magnitudal range of positive news or negative news, the, I, I sulk in the negative news way more than I celebrate the positive news. And so identifying that and trying to, again, celebrate the wins more and take a step back and appreciate what we've accomplished and, and the entrepreneurs in particular that we've worked with have accomplished is something that we need to do more of. How do you choose locations? Um, you know, now that you've moved out of the United States and you're going to be doing um, a G beta, I think it is in Luxembourg. How do you determine those locations? Do people come to you and request those things? How do you? Yeah, it's increasingly decide? inbound. So we'll have a community. Typically, we'll have a champion in the community. That could be a corporation, an individual, a venture firm, um, a unit of government, a state, a city, a county. Um, and it's increasingly inbound from there. It's a question of, is there, what type of commitment or what, you know, what type of resources can they bring to the table? Is it, um, space? Is it an event that they want to catalyze? Is it financing to, you know, pay for the OPEX or the investment? And so increasingly we're fortunate that we can, um, pick and choose kind of that. And so our favorite scenario is where a community is pulling us in. So we recently announced a program in San Antonio in partnership with Geekdom, um, and it, it was awesome. I mean, it was, it was like textbook. It was a community that looked at a group of different accelerator operators, ourselves included, and did some diligence and a process around that, ultimately selected us, and, and, and then rolled out the red carpet. I mean, I was down there for, a, for the announcement, and the mayor and the, the founding team of Rackspace, and you know, just a ton of um, great people coming together to celebrate this announcement. And so... You know that's our ideal—a community that's pulling us in. Um, but at the end of the day, we can't we can't operate if we don't have if we don't have funding and, and if we don't have champions of the community that want something like Generator there. And so increasingly, you know, we're we're able to filter based on that. What's next for Generator? What's the five-year plan? Yeah, we're you know we we view our work as as having a thesis around how we best serve our communities. And the way we describe it, and again, this is across all of these products, the, the startups, the art, music, the um, skilling program, even the corporate innovation work that we help with. The, if you're a national venture firm or a national employer looking to hire 1,000 people in a certificate or role, to engage the 30 or 40 communities is really hard because it's hard to go and build a you know, level of relationship with El Paso and Madison and you know, Omaha and, and Oklahoma City that enables you to get the full fruit of what each community can offer. And as a result, many will just sort of resort to a default of staying where they are and just not engaging at all. And you know, we have to view the solutions that we create as a designed outcome to the people we serve. And that requires us to think about how do we create a center of gravity for the company that for these people, whether it be venture firms or employers or rent labels or gallerists, that instead of going to 50 different stores for 50 different items, which I think is really the current model, that you can use our platform to create one store with every community's best of wares, where these people will come in and not only find it in effective and efficient shopping experience for how to invest or purchase or what have you, they'll also, and mentor, they'll also find a best in class product that they can't find in the coast. You know, they'll find, uh, uh, and so you get in this virtuous cycle of using this scale to create more scale. Um, and that 
only makes sense when we're doing it because it serves our customers the most effective way. And I think that as we look at the company, we feel like we need more of it. You know, one of the things we were most proud of this year, you're asking about, about equity. We did a program for black and brown led startups to facilitate meeting investors. And we were able to, for, you know, over two or 300 startups arrange over a thousand, I think it's over 1200 meetings in one day, which is only possible because of our scale or the conferences we run in ag tech and health tech or different events that we're able to use our scale to achieve outcomes, which are individually really hard for a one or two person venture firm or a localized economic development program to do. And we feel like that's where when we wake up and roll out of bed as a company, we can do things that are but for you know, I don't, I don't, at this point, I think we're larger than a lot of states departments of commerce or, you know, with hundred plus employees and scale, we can, we can do those sorts of opportunities. And it's a responsibility of ours as well as a result. And as we look at the next five years, we, we want to continue creating those, but for economic opportunities across place, race, and gender for the communities we serve. And, um, assuming that the people we serve say that that is what was missing for them or something that helps them in a, but for way, uh, we want to continue to grow it. What we have trouble on is even people on our team will say, well, where are we going? And it, I think what makes it harder to give a more, we'll be in 48 markets or, you know, we'll have this much revenue is we didn't, when we started, it really was a love letter to home. We were just trying to make it through the summer, going to that analogy of whether we were crazy or not self-aware. And um, I think for it to have reached the scale is beyond our imagination and not something we ever take for granted. So to project it as anything more than we've already been able to achieve feels like a disservice to it. But I, I do suspect, you know, we're seeing the San Antonio opportunity come online or the Luxembourg program come online, um, that it's, it is going to the special place where that thesis becomes more and more exciting. Um, and we anticipate, hopefully you'll see a lot more of that from us. It's really been a pleasure speaking to both of you today. What is the best way for listeners to get in touch with either one of you or members of your team? Find us at Culver's. <laughs> stop at starting block. But, yeah, stop at starting block. <laughs> I'd say hit up our website, generator.com. That's G-E-N-E-R, the number eight, T-O-R.com. And follow Joe and I on Twitter. We're really active and, you know, people that reach out, I think have an above average, you know, ability to... Um, correspond with us and, and interact. And congrats on starting block for everything you guys have done. It's been amazing to watch. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Innovate 608 podcast. What's the most innovative thing you've done this week? Record a message all about your innovation and send it to us in an email at innovate608 at startingblockmadison.org. Be sure to check out the Starting Block Madison Facebook page for video clips and episode outtakes. Remember, innovators, do one thing every day that is slightly outside of your comfort zone. That's where the magic happens. Thanks so much to the American Family Insurance Institute for Corporate and Social Impact for sponsoring this episode. See you next time.